Do you want to take a seat as we hear from God's word? It's a reading from Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Hello. Uh, Nice to see you. My name is Andy. I'm just going to start my little stopwatch so that I don't talk at you for hours and hours. I'm just going to keep it to three. Um, I'm, I'm, uh, if you weren't here when we started, I'm one of the team at Soul Survivor Watford. And we've really loved being uh, kind of family together, really, since we started St. Mike's at six. And I never get to come. I'm always back in Watford, but they let me out into the wild London, you know, into the big smoke for, uh, for one night only. So I'm really excited to be here. Um, and uh, I just want to share some thoughts on the passage that we just had read to us, um, which, is, which is a bit of a cracker, really. Um, and I, I don't know when you came to know Jesus, but I came to know him for myself when I was about 17. And ever since then, really, I've just been trying to work out what it is to have a relationship with him. And it, it feels like this sort of like, you know, when you're climbing a mountain, you get to what you think is going to be the top, and then you realize it's just another little false summit, and there's a whole lot more to discover. That's what it always feels like to me. And um, one of the things that I find about relationship with him is that it's so different from any other relationship of love we'll ever have. And um, one of the things that, that always strikes me is almost every relationship we have these days um, tends to involve we think about it in terms of what we can bring to the party. So, um, for example, if you're looking to date somebody, a lot of dating tends to happen these days online. Um, and I don't know if you've ever done any online dating, but, but usually on your profile, you have a little bio where you sort of write kind of like what is basically the worm on, on the hook. It's like, this is how you catch the fish. So you, you try and write something. People spend hours sort of crafting the perfect bio that's going to draw people in. And uh, there are a number of different approaches, but basically they're all the same thing, which is showing off what you've got. So I actually, um, to prepare for this, went on Google and found some bios for you. I'm not going to show the pictures of these people, but there's kind of like different approaches. So one approach to a a bio on a dating website is to go for the honest um, approach, just kind of get it all out there. So uh, this person said, 
you're smart. This isn't your first rodeo, and you're not about to fall for some of the preposterous claims made by so many of the profiles on this site. So here's a refreshing perspective, the truth. I pay my mortgage. I wear socks that match. I'm an honest man with a decent career and strong values. So while I could regale you with stories of my trips to Paris or how I resemble Ryan Gosling, I know that good communication is a foundation for every relationship. So if, if we're on the same wavelength, read on. The honest approach. Some people, they go for almost the, the complete opposite to that. So uh, the exaggerations. This person says, I am a rocket scientist. I've appeared on the cover of GQ magazine twice. And after mastering Italian, I became an international super spy. Right now, I'm yachting my way across the Caribbean, stealing top-secret information, sipping Mai Tais, shaken, not stirred, dot, dot, dot. Okay, fine. I exaggerated just a smidge, but I do like a good Mai Tai, and I got a B plus in my fifth grade science class. Um, some people, they just try and do it in one line, so they go for some sort of pithy little one-liner. So one of them that I thought was clever was this... Uh, this lady who's a respiratory therapy student. She specializes in helping people with their lungs. And uh, her little one-line bio is, cute enough to take your breath away, smart enough to bring it back. That's good, right? Um, and then how about this one? This is somebody else. She says, I'm the kind of girl you can take home to your family. I will then get closer to them than you are and will slowly phase you out. If there is a description of my wife... That is it. Um, but it's whatever your approach is, basically, here's my CV, right? Here's, here's what I can bring to the party. Here's my credentials. And when it comes to knowing Jesus, of course, it all starts with not with our goodness, but with our badness. Not with our plenty, but with our poverty. Not with the riches that we bring, but the need that we bring. That's where it starts. We just come needing his forgiveness and his love and his rescue, and he gives it to us. Um, and yet, so much of it seems to me what we might call discipleship is learning to, to rest in that truth. Do you find that it's hard to absorb that? Um, I, I remember when I was training to be a vicar, I had to do a placement as a chaplain in a hospital, and um, I ended up chatting with a lot of people during those couple of weeks, and there was this one lady I've never forgotten, she was called Margaret, and I sat by her bedside and chatted with her about half an hour, and she told me all about her life, and her and her husband and how they would go to church, but then they got too ill, and so they would watch songs of praise, and that was how they engaged, and, and stuff like this. And we chatted away anyway, and then I was just getting up to leave, and she, she, I shook her by the hand, and she wouldn't let my hand go. And she just held on to it tight, and she just looked at me, and she just said, um, sometime, and she said it with like a quiver in her lips, and like her eyes were welling up at this point. And I feel like that was what she was wanting to say for the whole half hour. She just couldn't. She couldn't bring herself to say it. And just as I was saying goodbye, she just said, sometimes I wonder if I've done something. She said, Terry, my husband, he thinks he's all right. But I wonder sometimes whether I've done something. And, and what she meant by that is that she, she wondered whether somewhere along the way she had disappointed God. She knew she didn't have long until she was going to see him face to face. And she was fearful that somehow she'd let him down, that somehow when she met him, she'd meet a God who, who turned his back on her, who rejected her. And, and um, I remember walking away and thinking, you know what, on the one hand, I don't get that, Margaret. You've been in church your whole life. You've heard the word of God 
week after week after week, and you still, you still wonder if you've done something. And then on the other hand, I thought, I completely get that. I've been in church for, for well over half my life now, and I still have mornings where I wonder whether I've done something. I still second-guess myself, feel insecure, have doubts. And um, it, th- this truth, which we're told in Romans that he loves us, is, is kind of, it's hard to just, it's hard to get it from here to here. And, and it reminds me of um, just about a couple of months ago, I took some of my boys, I've got four boys, would you believe it? Um, and I took two of them to this climbing wall thing in Watford. And uh, you kind of you get strapped up to this harness and you have to climb to the top of these walls that don't look very high on the ground, but I can tell you from the top, they feel pretty high. And uh, when you get to the top of one of the walls, the idea is you hit this little buzzer to, to be like, I've made it. And then you let go. And you sort of like, and then because you're attached to a harness, the whole thing sort of just lowers you slowly to the ground. And um, I, I remember, you know, they explained to you this has been tested, otherwise it would be illegal. This, this rope is perfectly secure. You do not need to worry. And then when you're up there holding on to the wall, right, my head is like, this is fine. You can let go. Um, but my body is screaming at me, don't do it, right? It's, it's so counterintuitive. And I remember that we did it wall after wall. My, my seven-year-old and my five-year-old were like smashing it. And I was at the top of these walls, just terrified, forcing myself every time to let go. And this was after an hour. I was still struggling. And uh, they, had this, they had this thing called the stairway to heaven, which was like these pillars that you stood on that had no grips. And they just got higher and higher and higher and higher and higher and higher and higher. Anyway, my seven-year-old, he made it to the top of the stairway to heaven. And then he came down. And so, of course, the competition was on. And I've, I had to do it as well. So I walked all the way up to the top of the stairway to heaven. I'm, I'm standing on this final pillar, which is like a little lamppost. But you're really high. And then what they say is, then just step off and it will lower you to the ground. And so again, I'm like, I can do this. I've already tested it multiple times. I know this is safe. But, but my body just rebelled. And it was like, no. And so I sort of flopped off, um, which meant that the momentum from this rope was all wrong. So I started then swinging and crashing like a conker on the end of a string into the pillars of the stairway to heaven all the way back down to hell, which was all these little kids just kind of laughing at me as I did it. And I remember finding it, as I was reflecting on this afterwards, like so irritating that even though I understood the theory in my head, I just couldn't get it into here. And there's, there's this disconnect, it seems to me, between our heads and our hearts so often. And that happens in all sorts of areas of life. Phobias are a great example. Little spiders cannot hurt you. And yet you flick one at somebody and they can be terrified, right? It's, it's a disconnect between what we know rationally and what we feel in our, in our bellies. And if we experience that in so many parts of life, do you think it's possible we experience it in our relationship with God and in our understanding of the scripture? I think it is. And we, and we hear this truth that he loves me. This is probably the greatest area of, of struggle for us. And yet inside, we just, we just cannot get it. And one of the antidotes, if there is an antidote to that problem, is to come back again and again and again, to just have big, long drinks of truth. And um, Romans chapter 8, you can't really get much better than this, but I'll just unpack just a couple of verses towards the end of what the reading was. So it says, Romans 8, verse 38, Paul writes, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us 
from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And and what he's saying here is, is staggering because he's not just saying he loves us. He isn't only talking about the fact that he's embraced us with this this love that is all-consuming, that, you know, how when you came to know him, you came to know love. He's not just saying that. What he's saying is that love that we know now, the love that is as wide as the horizon and as deep as the ocean, that love we will know forever. We'll never lose it. That's, That's the truth that he's trying to help us to get. And... We rebel, I think, partly because we're just, um, because of our upbringing, because of the world, which is, a, which is a good place and a broken place all at once, we're just conditioned to think of love in a particular way. Um, I went to America recently with Mike Pilavacci, who's been here a few times to speak, and uh, we're great friends and great enemies at the same time. And uh, we, we probably, there's no place where we come closer to physical blows than when we're driving together. Because he is the world's worst backseat driver, I can tell you. And what does my nut, if, you've, if you know people who are bad backseat drivers, is not when they make a comment. It's when they're obviously trying not to make a comment, but they're, fit, you know, they're like flinching. Do you know what I mean? Or they go, <laughs> like that, right? When, you, when there's a car approaching, like this. He does that all the time. It does my head in. Um, anyway, we're driving in America. And of course, in America, they drive on the wrong side of the road. And I remember uh, just thinking, this, this takes a lot of concentration. And particularly when I'm tired, particularly when I'm like exhausted after something, I have to really focus to drive on the right as opposed to driving on the left. And the reason for that is I'm just conditioned, we all are, to drive on the left. And we are conditioned also to, because of the love that we've experienced in our lives, so much of it, some of it's been great, but so much of it has been fragmented and, and fractured and, and fragile and twisted in, a, in, in its own way. And the love that we give, we know is temperamental, isn't it? And it, it can get hot and cold, and, but we just condition, that's all we know. And so we come to know a God whose love is not like that. And it's really hard to absorb it for what it is, especially when we're tired particularly when we're under pressure, we switch back into autopilot of thinking that his love is like ours, that his love is like the love of the people around us and it's not that. So we struggle partly for that. And the other reason why I think we find it hard to absorb and to rest in the truth of this is because we have an enemy. And we're told about him very clearly in the scripture, Satan. And he's real and he's out to get us, just like he was out to get Jesus. And his main weapon is lies. That's how he attacks most of the time. And what he loves to do is he loves to lie about the truth that we read here. And the first words of Satan in the Bible, um, his, his, his opening line in the great drama of Scripture is this. Did God really say? Did God really say that? That's how he starts. And that's how he continues today. And so Jesus, for example, at his baptism, the Father speaks over him, you're my son whom I love. With you I'm well pleased. Do you know what Satan does? The moment After that, Jesus goes into the wilderness. Satan comes to him and just introduces one tiny little two-letter word that changes the whole thing. If. If you really are the son of God. And, and what he loves to do is, 
Have you ever had it where you get a truth about God for just a moment? Like you see it so clearly, like someone's just cleaned a window in front of you and you can see what he's like for a bit. And then it's like you wake up on Monday and, it, and it's all fogged up again. Do you find that? It's like you get a truth and then it disappears like, like water down a plug hole. Satan, he loves to come and just snatch it away. So I've been thinking for myself, how is it that, that Margaret, how is it that I, year after year, I can hear this and I find it so hard to absorb? And the answer in part is because I'm conditioned, I've never met a love like this. And because I have an enemy who's always trying to cause me to question it. But what fascinates me about what Paul writes here is he says, I am convinced. I am persuaded. There's no qualification. There's no like, no, there's absolutely nothing can separate me from the love of God. And I'm going to give you a list of things that can't do it. He's totally persuaded. And, uh, and I've been trying to work out, well, how do you get to a point where you're convinced? And part of it, honestly, is, I think is coming to understand the nature of our relationship with him. So in the scriptures, we're given two big pictures that kind of like capture how our relationship with God works. The first is that he's a father and we're his kids. And I don't know if you saw stuff, um, you must have done on the news the last couple of years with COVID and the way that people have been separated from people that they love and not being able to be with them at key moments of their lives or not being able to travel to see them on the other side of the world. But can, you know, imagine a father who's been away from his, his child for a couple of years because of the COVIDs and the lockdowns and all the restrictions. And imagine him waiting at the airport to meet his child for the first time in two years. Think of that moment where, where the kid comes through and, and the dad just runs to him and embraces him and just holds him tight. Do you think he's going to rush that? Do you think that would be a, a quick embrace? Imagine if it wasn't COVID that separated them, but this, this kid went off the rails and was just away from him for years and years and years. And then, and then suddenly there was a turn in his circumstances and he came back and the dad at that point embraced. Do you think again that it's gonna be, he's going to be standoffish in a moment like that or do you think he's going to hold him tight? What we're told, the story is that our father left the throne of heaven in the person of his son Jesus and he, he went through everything, every trial you can imagine to find on the other side of that his prize and his goal, which is you, which is me, his, his, his son or his daughter. And then he holds close. And do you think for a moment he's going to let us go? Do you think having been through all of that, he's going to pull back? That's not what he, nothing can get in the way of a father and his child when the father is the almighty God. The God of love. So that's one picture of our relationship. Here's the second one, the second big one. There's loads, but a second big one is that, is that, and this is a weird one, but it's that Jesus is the bridegroom and we, the church, are the bride. And I don't know how many weddings you've been to, but as a vicar, I have to do weddings every now and then. And for me, there's lots of moments I love, but for me, the most moving moment is always where the couple make their vows. And, uh, you know, in the Anglican church, they, they make these promises for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death as do part. And there's always this massive party at a wedding, not just because of the fact that this couple, they love each other right there very much, but because what they're doing in that moment is they're making a vow of future love, of lasting love, that come what may, they will always love each other. 
And uh, when you're wearing the traditional Anglican get-up, you have this basically this big scarf on as a vicar. And at the moment where they make their vows, you kind of like you take their hands and you join them together, and then you wrap their hands up in your scarf, and um, and then you lift their hands up, and then you you make this statement. And whenever I do it internally, what I'm thinking is, um, I don't know if you've ever seen the Lord of the Rings. But there's this moment that's very famous where Gandalf goes, you shall not pass. If you've seen it, you know. If you haven't, don't worry. But internally, I'm channeling Gandalf. I don't vocalize that in the moment at the wedding, but that's what I'm thinking on the inside, right? And I wrap their hands up in this scarf, and then I lift it up, and then you have to say, those whom God has joined together, let no one put asunder. Put another way, don't mess with this. Let no one come between this couple. No one mess with this. Now, it's as if, this is the image we're given in the scripture, that Jesus the bridegroom comes to us and takes us as his bride. And then what he does, it's almost like he takes us by the hand, he lifts it up to the Father, and then he wraps our hands up in the Holy Spirit. You know, the comforter, and the guide and the protector and the, the spirit of truth and the spirit of wisdom and the spirit who'll never abandon us, who'll be with us forever. He wraps him all up. And then, and, and then in that moment, do you know what? He doesn't say, let no one put asunder. What he says is, no one can put asunder. No one can. No one can break this bond. No one can come between. And when we start to think about that, for me, one of the things that again just comes up at me is, again, I'm like at the top of the climbing wall and I'm like, yeah, okay, I understand the theory of this, but what rises up in my, in my guts is, but what if I mess up? What if I make a mistake? What if I do something terrible? And, um, you know, maybe he loves me now. And, and the truth is, if we want to distance ourselves from him, he'll allow us to do that. Just like he allowed the prodigal son to, to go far from the house. But it doesn't work reverse. He will never distance himself from us. You can never lose him by accident. Unless you don't want him in your life, he will always be here and he will always be close. And our hope and our peace as believers, that the joy of salvation, the place that it's found, is not in our ability to hold on to him and not make a mistake. It's found in his hold of us. It's like if I had a, you know, when I've got my little boy, my three-year-old, and I take him into the swimming pool and I'm holding his hand, you know what? It's, it's important that he holds onto my hand, but the real hope for him in that moment is that I'm holding onto his. It comes from me. It comes from dad. It's my strength in that moment. And our hope is that he is holding onto us, that he's never going to let us go. And uh, I remember chatting with Mike about it all about this, this whole thing. And he just looked at me and he said, do you know what, Andy? When God made the plan of salvation, he factored in your stupidity. And I'm like, man, that's a great way of putting it. I wish I could travel back in time and be at Margaret's bedside. And she'd be like, I wonder if I've done something. And I could look at her and say, you have done something, Margaret. We've all done stuff. You've done loads of stuff, but it's all right. Because when God made the plan of salvation, he factored in your stupidity, just like he factored in mine. And he did something that was greater than all the things we've done put together. And uh, that's the truth. And you know, I've, I've been just mulling the fact that I might succeed through my stupidity in driving everybody in my life away, but I'll never be able to drive him away. 
And then another thing rises up in me as I think, well, I'll never be separated from his love. But what, what about all the things that are going on in my life right now that are hard? What about the fact that I struggle with, you know, we've got anxiety going on or we're struggling with depression? What about the fact my life has absolutely not gone according to plan? How am I here? What, what about the pain that I've experienced? If he really loved me, if I could really never be separated from his love, surely I wouldn't be where I am with all of these, all of these battles that I'm having to fight. And you know what? As I've pondered that, I've come back to the Bible again and again, and there is no place I can find where Jesus promises us that life is going to be straightforward and simple and easy. Um, I feel like that's a Bible verse I've memorized, but it wasn't ever there. And, uh, you know, in fact, in, in many places, it seems to say the opposite. And there's, there's a Christian that I'm familiar with who all his life, uh, really, he just tried to tell people about Jesus. That's what he was for. He lived, ate and breathed it. And, and yeah, his life had so many things go wrong. So he was in a number of serious accidents when he was traveling from one place to another, one of which nearly cost him his life. Um, on top of that, he was actively, he had to deal with violence. People targeted him. Um, and he was, he was beaten up on, on numerous occasions, this guy. A lot of his, a lot of his ministry happened um, when he was in prison. Not, not when he was visiting prison, but when he was actually in prison lots of his ministry, he was jailed for stuff and that's where he ended up doing it just because that's where he was. And he, he, he would talk about how afraid he was so much of the time. And eventually his life, it doesn't have a happy ending, this guy, because the way that he died is ultimately he was beheaded. And it's a Christian I'm familiar with, it's one you're familiar with too because his name's Paul and he wrote Romans chapter eight. And what he says there, despite everything that he goes through, is I am convinced that nothing can separate me from his love. And he doesn't say, it means I won't have trouble and I won't have hardship. What he says is in the midst of trouble. And as I endure hardship and persecution, I'll never be apart from him. And, and it's a myth that we can buy into because it's part of the world that we've known as we've grown, but that, that somehow the life we're called to by Jesus Christ is, is to one of superficial comfort and it's just so much better and richer and more terrifying the call. It, it's to a life of deep joy with a God who wants to bless us, yes. I mean, he gave us his only son, Will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? If he gave you a gift worth a billion pounds, is he going to skimp on the wrapping paper? Like he wants to bless us. And yet at the same time, the call is, is not to a life of just living for ourselves, but of laying down our lives, of sometimes even actively choosing the path of suffering because it's the way of obedience, because it's the path of Jesus Christ. That's the call. And Paul, in the midst of his suffering, what he was able to say is nothing. I have found that nothing at all in all of creation can separate me from his love. And this is a truth that when feelings are not there, we have to come back to it again and again and again. Um, just to, as I come into land, I, I heard of this one guy who was this really well-known Christian back in the day in Scotland, a guy called Hugh Kennedy. And when he was dying, he called for a Bible. And uh, he, was, he was losing his eyesight. He couldn't see anymore. So he just said to the people that brought him the Bible, he said, open the Bible to Romans chapter 8. And then he said... 
put my finger on the words where it says, I am persuaded that neither life nor death. And they did it. And he said, my finger's there. And they said, yes, they're there. They're on those words. And then he said, now God be with you, my children. I have had breakfast with you. I will have dinner with our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he died. I mean, what an exit. What a way to go, right? I'm already planning my own version of that. I'm not sure what verse I'll choose, but I'm like, that is a way to go, right? You just know, this is it. This is the truth. I've had breakfast with you. I'm going to have dinner with Jesus. Nothing can separate me from his love. And knowing this truth and reminding ourselves of it day after day after day after day, as we grow in it, it changes everything. And, uh, you know, I find so often I wake up in the morning and I'm assailed by my own failures and my own, the blackness of my heart and the things I get wrong and all this other stuff. And you know what? I've been trying of late to ask myself a question. And the question is this, the one Paul poses to us, Romans chapter 8, can anything separate me from his love? Can death He's defeated it. Can life, it can't, no matter what it throws at us. Can angels, they don't want to. Can demons, they flee from his name. Can powers, there is nothing more powerful than him. Can the present, he's here with me now. Can the future, he'll be there with me then. Can the heights, they just bring us nearer to him. Can the depths, they just draw him closer to us. Can anything else in all creation separate us from him? No. And so we, we, are to, we are to be the most joyful people in the universe because not only have we found a love that we've been looking for, the one we've been searching for our whole lives, but we know now and we can be persuaded now that we will have this love for always, forever. That's pretty good, right? Amen. Amen.